Hello folks. Welcome to the April 2021 edition of First Thursday, the monthly podcast from the Labor Relations Information System. My name is Will Aitchison and I'll be your host for the next 45 minutes or so while we go over recent developments in the public safety labor world. But first, I want to talk about a problem of understanding what the facts are. This is a problem that is absolutely plaguing the police today with respect to the use of deadly force. Uh, and this discussion that I'm about to start on uh, really began when I saw an article in USA Today. And it was an article that was headlined, Black women like Breonna Taylor die every day at the hands of police. Uh, and that came across my desk at roughly the same time as an article that is published or was published in Skeptic Magazine uh, came to light. Uh, a little bit of background about Skeptic Magazine. It's one of my favorite magazines, and what they do is they take an evidence-based approach towards pretty much anything you can think of. Uh, so, for example, uh, what, are, what are the efficacies of the different vaccines for COVID that are out there? Uh, what evidence is there for various conspiracy theories? They're really big on the whole issue of science-based medicine versus uh, what's sometimes called alternative me medicine or complementary medicine. And to Skeptic Magazine, the most important thing is, you know, we need to know what the facts are. We're, we're simply not going to guess as to what those facts may be. Well, Skeptic Magazine, at about the same time, almost the same day as this a USA Today article was put out, uh, put out a study on how informed Americans are about race and policing. And we'll put both the USA Today article and the skeptic study uh, on our website uh, so that you can take a look at it when you look at the information pertinent to this podcast. What this study was all about was something that's called the Civil Unrest and Presidential Election Study. CUPES is the acronym for it. Uh, this is, I think, the sixth or seventh year that they have done this. They've done it for some period of time. Uh, and they asked a broad cohort of individuals some very limited questions. Uh, one set of questions dealt with the political orientation of the individuals who were uh, answering. So. They had to rate themselves on a scale of one to five, with one being very liberal, three being moderate, and five being very conservative, uh, and points in between, of course. Uh, they gave the demographics of the people that they spoke to, and it, it appears their average age is 47.16 years. So they're talking to a slightly older audience. The average age for American adults is 38 years and some change. So they're talking to a, an older group of people uh, and 56% of their respondents were women. And nationally about 51%, 51, 52% uh, of individuals of Americans are women. It gets a little bit higher as you get older and those of us with a Y chromosome tend to die off uh, more quickly. So here's the question that Skeptic Magazine asked. 
and actually they asked two questions about policing. The first question, if you had to guess how many unarmed black men were killed by police in 2019? And the second question, if you had to guess in 2019, what percentage of people killed by police were black? So this gets right into the heart of people's perceptions of the racial component of police officers' use of deadly force. So how did they answer? And they were given five choices. They had to pick one of five answers. Uh, the first one was about 10. The second was about 100. This is for how many unarmed black men were killed by police. The third was about 1,000. The fourth was about 10,000. And the last was about more than 10,000. So uh, let, let's take a look at the moderates, because those are the people, bluntly, that I'm mostly interested in here. I kind of think of myself as a moderate politically. Moderates are the people who decide our elections in this country. So let's see what they said. So 33% of moderates said about 10 was the answer to the question of how many unarmed black men are ki were killed by police in 2019. The biggest answer uh, was about 100, at 40.59%, uh, a pretty healthy number. 16% of moderates thought the answer was about 1,000. Another healthy number, about 6%, thought the answer was about 10,000. And 3.49% thought the answer was more than 10,000. What is the correct answer? 13. So the vast majority of Americans, significant moderate Americans, significantly overstate the number of black men who were unarmed, who were shot and killed by police. Now, as you go up and down the political spectrum, you find those numbers changing very significantly. So, for example, the very conservative people, 45% of them got the right answer uh, of about 10, where 33% of uh, the moderates got the right answer. What about the very liberals? Only 15% of them got the right answer. Uh, how many people thought about a thousand unarmed black men were killed by the police? If you're very conservative, 13% thought that. The moderates, 16%, not that much of a difference. But when you get to very liberal, 31%. Now, the same sort of answers, uh, or kind of the relationship to reality, showed up when they asked the second question. If you had to guess in 2019 what percentage of people killed by police were black. Here the respondents could pick any number from zero to a hundred. Uh, and uh, the answer that was given was if you were in the liberal or very liberal category, the answer that was given was between 56 and 60 percent. Uh, very liberal. On the average, the numbers, precise number, was 60.4%. A percentage of, that's the percentage of people killed by police who were black. 
56% of liberals thought that. We dipped down to 45% uh, when we get to moderates. Conservatives, 37%. And then we go back up pretty significantly from 37% to 44% when you get to very conservative people. Uh, and this is an interesting phenomenon you see out there in American politics, that the more conservative that you get, uh, you tend to support police more and you tend to be a little bit more factually based until you get to the very conservative side of the equation. And then you start to resemble uh, liberals in terms of how fact-based they are in their conclusions about the police. Uh, by the way, what's the correct number? Uh, the percentage of people killed by police who were black, uh, 24%, uh, and roughly 50% less than the group that got it the closest, conservatives at 37%. What does this tell us? This tell us tells us two things. First of, us, uh, first of all, Americans on the issue of race and deadly force in policing their views are shaped by their opinions, not by the facts. The facts simply haven't gotten out there, or if they've gotten out there, they haven't resonated in a way that they have impacted any opinions whatsoever. Nothing new there, right? Uh, I mean, we're Americans. We have opinions about everything, and uh, many times we don't bother to fact-check ourselves on uh, various attitudes that we have developed over time. The second thing that this tells us is that law enforcement, and in general, I would say this would be the responsibility of law enforcement employers and large law enforcement groups like the IACP or the National Association of Sheriffs or uh, NAPO or FOP. I think it's the responsibility of these large groups to get the right information out there. Whatever happens in this area, wherever the whole uh, thread of police reform takes us over the next few years, and it is going to take, take us very clearly on a very significant ride, we need that to be fact-based, don't we? Not based upon opinions that are not grounded in what the facts are. We need to do a better job of getting the message out. I want to offer a brief postscript to the story that I just told you about. Uh, I'm recording this the day after that I recorded the main podcast. And in particular, what I wanted to do was go back to the USA Today article and give an explanation about it. But first, in order to have that explanation, you need to understand something about the production function here at LRIS with respect to news and cases and everything like that. So we have at least two people who are using so-called internet news trawlers every day to look around the country for articles about public safety labor issues. Uh, you can imagine how many different search strings that we have uh, constructed that look for firefighters or police or corrections officers or deputy sheriffs and collective bargaining and you, you can just imagine and these trawlers give us a big haul every day and we look at articles from around the country uh, i know myself i probably look at at least 
40 to 50 articles a day from around the country. I'm not reading the articles. I'm reading the headlines to see if they are of any interest, and then I'm triaging them, and I actually will go read anything that's interesting. Well, that's where we got the USA Today article. Uh, I think it was I'm the one who found it. It may have been Claire Cowan, who also does this news trawling on a regular basis. Um, whichever of us found it, though, uh, what we did was to uh, save it in a folder on our computer, a folder in which we save articles that might be of interest for this podcast. Uh, and I think this was me who saved it. I know it, uh, it was. I saved it in its HTML format. So basically what the computer was doing was taking a picture of the article. And then when we get to the podcast and I record the podcast, I will mention in the podcast from time to time that uh, we are going to be putting things on our webpage, links to different documents that I mentioned in the podcast, the cases that we're talking about, the news articles, whatever it might be. Enter Mark Fuller, uh, another part of our team at LRIS. He actually runs the day-to-day -day operations here at LRIS. Uh, Mark is the techie guy amongst us. Uh, and so Mark is the one who produces the podcast. Uh, he will take out some, most, maybe even all of my false starts over the course of a podcast. Uh, and Mark will make sure that all of the links are created on our website uh, to reference the materials I talk about in the podcast. So Mark went out uh, and found this USA Today article. Uh, the HTML version that we have saved on the computer wouldn't do him any good, right? Because uh, he's posting a link. He's not posting that saved web page. Um, and he found the article, and lo and behold, it turns out that USA, uh, changed, USA Today changed the headline. So the original headline, just to remind you, uh, was the notion that uh, there, an African-American woman in this country is shot every day by the police. Uh, of course, that is simply an absurd proposition. Uh, it is nowhere close to the truth. But what did USA Today uh, do to the headline? Well, somebody obviously called them up or wrote them an email or sent them a Twitter feed, uh, tweet. Uh, who knows what it is they did, but someone obviously called them and said, hey, you guys got that like very seriously wrong. So they have changed their headline. And the headline is Breonna Taylor and hundreds of black women have died at the hands of police. So it's not a black woman dies every day. It's Hundreds of women have died at the hands of police. So they're trying to correct what the problem was with that headline. Uh, were they successful in correcting that problem? No, the, the corrected headline is still misleading. It's still very, very misleading. How many black women were shot by police last year in all of last year? Well, you can go to the Washington Post database on officer-involved shootings, and they have some very handy filters where you can choose whether or not the incidents you're looking for involve a body camera or a gun 
or the state or the gender or the race or the age of the individual. How many African-American women were shot and killed by police in 2020? Was it hundreds? Actually, it was two. Now, the Washington Post has been keeping these numbers since 2015. Uh, so we have five years worth of data, maybe six years. I'm not sure how they're counting a year. Over that entire time span, 50 African-American women have been shot by the police. So that headline is, yeah, it's probably less misleading uh, than you would think uh, it was before, uh, because certainly hundreds of African-American women uh, is a little bit less misleading than somebody is shot every day, shot and killed every day, but it's still misleading. And I think what this whole process, uh, kind of emphasizing what I said in the original segment I did on this piece, what this whole process should tell us is we need to be vigilant when we read these articles. We see these articles all the time, right? And uh, whether or not it's about police shootings or it could be about firefighter collective bargaining or retirements or defined benefit plans are, are too generous, whatever it might be. We see these articles and we grumble because we know that something in that article is false or maybe many things in that article are false. And then we just move on to, you know, the, the next video of cats playing with each other on Facebook or whatever it might be. We need to pause and we need to do what whoever induced USA Today to change that headline, we need to do what they did. We need to write in. We need to send them an email or contact the author directly. I probably do this over a hundred times a year myself when I see these different articles. And we need to say, hey, you got it wrong. And here's the correct information. Uh, I said earlier that I think this is primarily the response in the context of officer-involved shootings of police management. Uh, and I think police unions, of course, have a responsibility to do it. Uh, and I also think, though, that all of us, all of us who are involved in the business of public safety labor relations, we need to be vigilant about what we read. And when we see something that's wrong, we let people know that. Otherwise, our dialogue is not going to be fact-based. And if our dialogue is not fact-based, then we're just simply taking a chance, a random chance with whatever the outcome of that dialogue may be. All right, postscript over onto the regular podcast. Now let's dive into the cases. And we got a fascinating group of cases to talk about this month. As usual, I hope I get to all of them. Uh, the first one is we have, to the best of my knowledge, the first lawsuit filed in the country challenging a mandatory vaccination program, vaccinations being for COVID-19, of course. We don't have an answer uh, to the question of whether or not the program is legal or violates some law, but we have the first report of a lawsuit filed, and it raises a very interesting and I think completely unresolved issue, 
And what really is annoying is I hadn't even thought of this issue before, uh, and yet here it pops up. So what's going on in this case? Uh, this is a case that involves a corrections officer in New Mexico. Uh, and this, this correction officer, his name is Isaac Legaretta. He's an employee of the Dona Ana County Detention Center in New Mexico. And he claimed that the county manager had issued a mandatory COVID-19 vaccine directive requiring all first responders to receive a vaccine as a condition of employment. Uh, and for some reason or another, uh, uh, Legaretta is, uh, is opposed to taking a vaccine. He's concerned about it. So he's filed a lawsuit in federal court, and he's demanding immediate action on this lawsuit. This lawsuit was filed uh, only, I think, about 10 days ago, something like that. And the immediate action that he wants is he's asking a federal court for an ex parte, meaning the other side is not present there in the case, an ex parte temporary restraining order. So he wants a TRO, wants the judge to grant it without the county being there, prohibiting the county from taking any negative actions against Legaretta for refusing vaccination. And what's his theory? You heard me talk earlier about whether or not mandatory vaccine programs might violate the Americans with Disabilities Act or might uh, violate Title VII's prohibition on religious discrimination. This isn't any of these things. What Legaretta is setting, saying is that the directive violated a particular section, if you're counting Title 21 of the United States Code, Section 360BBB-3. Can't believe how they number the United States Code these days. He's saying, at any rate, uh, this mandatory vaccine program violates this section of the code, which deals with Food and Drug Administration. And this section of the code is entitled authorization for medical products for use in emergencies. All of the vaccines that are out there, the Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna vaccine, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, those are the three that have been approved in the U.S., have all been approved under emergency use authorizations pursuant to this section of the United States Code. Uh, they're called EUAs, apparently. Under the code, Individuals to whom an EUA vaccine or any medical product that is being given, so it, it could even be a piece of equipment that is being used or something like that, uh, any medical product that is authorized only under an EUA, the individuals who receive that must be informed, and I'm quoting, of the option to accept or refuse administration of the product of the consequences, if any, of refusing administration of the product and of the alternatives to the product that are available and of their benefits and risks. Now, the Congress, when it wrote this, clearly didn't seem to have employment in mind. They didn't tell us what the phrase, consequences, if any, of refusing administration of the product, even though the context of that phrase kind of suggests that Congress was talking about medical consequences, not employment consequences. But still, 
there's a strong implication there that a vaccine that comes onto the market under an emergency use authorization can't be given on a mandatory basis. It's an implication. Uh, I don't think it's, it's written in stone at all, and I'll give you my opinion on this later on as to how this case is eventually going to come out. But I just want to point out, this is not an off-the-wall argument uh, that Legoretta is made, making here. This is, a, I think, a pretty significant argument, and it's bolstered by a lengthy guidance that the FDA has on its webpage uh, on EUAs. And it, this lengthy guidance is pages and pages and pages long, requires that the Food and Drug Administration ensure that recipients of an EUA product, quote, have the option to accept or refuse the EUA product and of any consequences of refusing administration of the product. All right, that seems to cement the notion uh, that if you're going to take an EUA vaccine, it's got to be voluntary. But like Congress, the FDA didn't talk about what this means in terms of employment. So Legaretta's argument is, hey, uh, this language, it clearly applies in an employment setting. Give me the emergency TRO that I want, and then we'll slug it out. Uh, the court ends up saying, well, Legoretta, uh, I'm going to let you continue in court. I'm not going to give you the emergency TRO because nothing negative has happened to you. Uh, the only thing that appears to have occurred is you've received something called a coaching counseling uh, to which you have acknowledged the receipt. Uh, and the document, the coaching counseling document, uh, specifically says on its face, it is not considered a form of discipline and is solely used as a tool for performance management. So, like Loretta, you haven't been harmed. And in order to get a TRO, temporary restraining order, you need to show irreparable harm. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to set this case for very quick consideration, uh, for consideration for the issuance of a preliminary injunction but the county is going to be a participant in the case, and the county is going to be able to brief the case. Uh, well, now, uh, where do we go from here? Uh, probably, we're going to see a decision from this court within a month or two, depending upon the schedule that the court said, sets for its briefing. Uh, we have already seen the blogs around the country uh, from large employer sides uh, law firms, uh, law firms uh, taking positions on what this EUA means, the EUA language in the statute and in the FDA's guidance. And actually, the employer-side law firms are splitting into three camps. Uh, there are some that say, no, nah, this doesn't apply to employment. Uh, don't worry about it. There are some who are on the other side who say, boy, that sure looks like a vaccine has to be voluntary, no matter what the context. And then there are those in the middle who take what I think of as a very prudent approach. And that approach is to say, we don't really know what that statute or what that regulation or guidance means in the context of employment. But the more prudent course of events would be to simply 
not have a mandatory vaccination program until this gets sorted out in some other case where you, our clients, are not the defendant. Uh, so I, I think you're going to see employers that are aware of this, probably most of them, taking that middle ground, trying to find some way to work around employees who are objecting to taking the vaccine. How do I think this is going to come out? Uh, I am unconvinced that the FDA statute or the guidance from the FDA uh, applies in an employment setting. Um, my thought is that uh, it rather applies to a much more broad-based uh, mandatory vaccine program, uh, perhaps in schools, uh, perhaps for all citizens. And we've had mandatory vaccine programs for all citizens in states, not in with COVID, but uh, elsewhere. But we'll see. Uh, there's absolutely no law on this, at least that I can find. And I think this is the only case in the country. I'll keep watching it. And we will get word out as soon as there are some developments in the case. Our next case that we have uh, comes to us from Pennsylvania. It's an ADA case, and it, it raises an issue that pops up like every five or 10 years or so. It doesn't come up very often, uh, but this case serves as a wonderful reminder to employers. You can't simply rely on state standards Whatever those state standards are, they may be standards issued by a post board for policing or by a fire uh, certification agency for firefighting, uh, whatever it might be. can't simply blindly rely on those state standards if those standards are violative of the law, whether it be the Americans with Disabilities Act or Title VII or the Civil Rights Act, whatever it might be. You can't have somebody else do your discriminating for you and say, okay, well, I'm not at fault. Uh, this case is also another excellent reminder uh, that an employer uh, is responsible under federal discrimination laws, uh, is responsible for the actions of doctors with whom it contracts. Uh, and if those doctors are rendering judgments that violate federal law, the ADA or whatever it might be, some other law, the employer can be on the hook for the damages in the case. So what's this case all about? It's about a guy named Christopher Gibbs, who's applying to be a Pittsburgh police officer. Uh, Gibbs has kind of an interesting history. Uh, as a child, he had ADHD uh, and uh, he apparently got his ADHD under control. He had uh, served as a Marine without any problems in terms of behavior. Five other police departments had found him mentally fit, and the court says that five other police departments had hired him. That doesn't sound right that you already have five different police jobs. Maybe it is. Maybe the court really meant that they offered him employment and he he passed all of their requisite tests. It really doesn't matter too much. Uh, but he really wanted to be a Pittsburgh police officer. Uh, he takes the written test, he passes, and he gets a conditional job offer. And at that point, Pennsylvania law requires him to be, and I'm quoting, personally examined by a Pennsylvania licensed psychologist 
and found to be psychologically capable of exercising appropriate judgment or restraint in the performance of the duties of a police officer. Uh, Gibbs goes to see three different psychologists. Two of the three who interviewed him uh, gave the opinion that he was unfit to serve, and so the city rejected his application. Uh, and uh, that's the issue that goes to this, uh, it's a federal appeals court, is whether or not Gibbs has a claim under the Americans with Disabilities Act. And the court dispenses with that issue very quickly. It says, yeah, of course, ADHD is a mental disability. Uh, even if it was under control, it's clear the employer regarded him as having such a disability. And under the ADA, if you're simply regarded by the employer as having a disability, you are covered by the law and the employer can't discriminate against you uh, on the basis of its incorrect conclusion. So Gibbs clearly has posed a claim under the ADA. Uh, and how does the city argue about this? Well, uh, the, the, court, uh, the court recites a couple of arguments that the city makes. Uh, the first is that uh, the city is contending that Gibbs has to show that the city of Pittsburgh itself made decisions that violated the ADA. But here, it was the psychologist who decided wrongly that he was disabled. So in other words, the city is saying, not us, them, the psychologists. And what does the Third Circuit Federal Court of Appeals say? Uh, we reject that argument. Under the ADA, discrimination includes participating in a contractual arrangement that has the effect of discrimination on the basis of disability, quote, Thus, an employer cannot evade its obligations under the ADA by contracting out personnel functions to third parties. This includes using a pre-employment examination as conclusive proof of an applicant's mental capabilities. And here comes the drum roll, followed by, so if the psychologist discriminated against Gibbs, the city would be liable for relying on them. Uh, again, that returns to the theme of these cases when they do pop up, uh, that an employer cannot simply wash its hands of any liability by having a third party like a psychologist or a doctor or a psychiatrist or whoever it might be uh, do the hard work of determining whether or not someone is fit for duty. City's got another argument, though, and this argument uh, is that state law required the city to screen out Gibbs. Uh, remember that state law that I read you at the start of this discussion uh, that requires that a psychologist find the applicant to be psychologically capable of exercising appropriate judgment or restraint. The city is saying, hey, uh, we don't have any choice in the matter. The state law uh, tells us that Gibbs has to meet these minimum standards, and the psychologists tell us that, uh, that he doesn't. And what does the appeals court say about that argument? 
appeals court says, hey, quote, it makes no difference. Under the Supremacy Clause, that's the Supremacy Clause of the U.S. Constitution, which says that the Constitution and United States statutes are the supreme uh, law of the land, hence the phrase Supremacy Clause. An employer may not shield itself from federal anti-discrimination liability just by saying it was trying to follow state law. The demands of the ADA do not yield to state laws that discriminate against the disabled. It works the other way around. So this puts employers in a bind, the, this whole notion that you can't simply blindly rely on state certification standards in making your employment decisions. What it does is it forces employers to engage whatever the state certifying authority is, or maybe even go to the effort of getting state statutes changed in order to make sure that state certification requirements line up with the requirements of the Americans with Disabilities Act and other federal anti-discrimination laws. Uh, I don't mean to minimize that task that employers have. It's a difficult task, right? Uh, to try to convince a state agency to change its standards. But under this line of cases, and this line of cases is unbroken, and we're hearing from, from a federal appeals court here, that's exactly the job that employers have. Our next case is from Illinois, and this involves a court writing a fairly long opinion. I think that thing was about 19 pages long. Uh, in order to tell a firefighter the equivalent of nice try, uh, but it raises kind of an interesting question that hadn't been decided in Illinois yet. It's been decided in a couple of cases, uh, and actually different states are split on this issue. So if this is a, a topic that comes up for you, you need to make sure you check your local state law to find out how your courts go on this issue. So well, what what's going on here? This is a firefighter by the name of Robert a Pazino, and I am without question mispronouncing his name. His name is spelled P-Y-Z-Y-N-A. I just can't do any better than Pazino. He worked for the Prospect Heights Fire Protection District uh, in Illinois, and uh, he served the district for 12 years. And then in 2017, on Halloween in 2017, he turned 65. And that's the mandatory retirement age for firefighters under a law known as the Illinois Fire Protection District Act. Uh, Pazino retires. He gets a defined benefit plan uh, that provides him with pension benefits. Uh, but he also files a claim for unemployment benefits. And he indicates in his claim that he sought those benefits because he had been, quote, laid off, end quote, from his place of employment. The district uh, responds, and au contraire, he wasn't laid off. He retired, and he was given an employer-sponsored defined benefit pension, uh, and the employer challenges the award of unemployment benefits. Uh, there are uh, conflicting decisions as this case goes up through the chain and into the courts, and eventually we end up with the Illinois Court of Appeals, which uh, tells Pazina 
nice try. Uh, the court starts its opinion by saying that the state unemployment law only provides benefits to individuals whose unemployment uh, is not brought about by their fault or is not brought about by their own consent. In other words, unemployment happens if the employer ends your job. If you walk away from your job, if you quit, uh, you ordinarily are not entitled to unemployment compensation. Uh, there's an exception to that, and that is if you quit with good cause, uh, then because of some intolerable employment condition within the employer, then you can get unemployment benefits. But generally speaking, only people who were involuntarily terminated get unemployment benefits. Uh, so the court is just simply laying out the nature of Illinois unemployment law, and that's the way unemployment statutes are structured everywhere that I have seen them. Well, Bazina says, uh, well, you know, I was terminated by the employer. I did not want to leave my job. This is an involuntary termination, so I should get unemployment benefits. And Here's why the court says no. Now, the court says we've looked at cases from all around the country, and we find the better approach is that employees who lose their jobs because of a mandatory employment policy do so voluntarily. And they do so voluntarily without good cause, without that intolerable working conditions environment. Uh, the court says there's no dispute that Illinois fire departments are bound by the terms of the mandatory retirement age, and the mandatory retirement age is not even set by the fire departments. It's set by the state, and it's in state statute. Uh, and I'm going to read to you a few opinions uh, that make up the court's ultimate conclusion. Pazina and all other firefighters thus know that their careers as firefighters are finite and will terminate when they reach the age of 65. They know they no longer meet the qualifications to service a firefighter once they reach that age. By accepting employment at the district, Pazina accepted and agreed to abide by that employment term. We therefore conclude that when Pazina left his employee with the district, um, that he did so voluntarily. And remember, people who leave voluntarily don't get unemployment benefits, uh, and except if they leave with good cause. And the court says, in this case, because the mandatory retirement policy was set at the state level, I'm quoting, Pazina's separation from his place of employee cannot be considered good cause attributable to the employer. And actually this, I think, is the majority rule around the country uh, that a, if you're terminated as a result of a mandatory employment policy, or excuse me, mandatory retirement policy, uh, that you cannot get unemployment insurance. And really it does make sense, doesn't it, that that's the way the statute should be interpreted. But there are some states that go the opposite direction. So again, check with your local law on the issue if this is something that has come up for you. Let's head over to New Jersey now for our next case. 
uh, and talk about an interesting question of labor relations law. And that is, under what circumstances can the employer inquire about what happened at a union meeting? Now, just kind of as an introduction, uh, there are some strains of New Jersey uh, labor law that indicate a very rough and tumble employment environment in some New Jersey police departments and fire departments. Uh, there are things that happen in some of these cases that you actually don't see happen pretty much anywhere else in the country. And I think this case uh, is an illustration of that trend. So this case involves, at the heart of it, is the police chief of the Patterson, New Jersey Police Department. It's a fellow named Ibrahim uh, Michael uh, Bacora. Uh, the city has two collective bargaining agreements, one with rank-and-file employees and one with superior officers. Uh, the PBA, the Patrolman's Benevolent Association in New Jersey, uh, represents both of them, uh, both of these locals. Uh, Bacora's pretty uh, outspoken in bargaining. He's on the city's bargaining team, and he attended uh, in uh, 2020, October 27, 2020, he attended a joint negotiation session with both the Rank and File and Superior Officers Association as a member of the city's bargaining team. And during the course of the meeting, he was asked by the city to give his opinion on some bargaining issues. Uh, and he did not withhold his judgment. Uh, he accused the union's attorney of misconduct. Uh, he stated that the flexible work hours of the presidents for the PBA and the Superior Officers Association presidents uh, put them in a position where they were in dereliction of duty. He expressed his desire to eliminate past practice from both collective bargaining agreements, said he wanted to unilaterally change the work hours of any division in the department without negotiating. He complained about the sick leave benefits in the contract. Uh, in particular, he thought that sick leave should be granted or not at the discretion of the chief. I could go on, but you get the theme. Uh, chief Bacora was pretty strong in his opinion about management rights. Well, following this bargaining session, the PBA and the Superior Officers Association hold a joint membership meeting. Bacora, here's some stories about what goes on in the joint membership meeting, and he thought that what he said in bargaining was misrepresented. Uh, Bacora then goes to a roll call. He asks all the superior officers to leave and who's left in the room? 10 rank-and-file police officers. And Bacora tells them, despite what you've heard, your benefits and your schedules are safe under me, and I am not touching them. Bacora stated that officers were all, quote, eating well, end quote, under him, and that there were more off-duty PBA jobs involving security at construction sites because he had allowed those programs to grow and to continue. Um, sounds like a familiar sort of tone of voice, doesn't it? Something we may have heard recently. Bacora also commented on pending disciplinary matters. He said there are some officers who should be fired or should be forced to leave or subjected to heavy discipline. But I haven't pushed for that yet, but I could. 
And then he mentions by name a female police officer who he claimed that, that he had gotten her job back uh, and that she should have paid a heavy price, but due to his own, quote, good graces, her job had been saved by him. Uh, Bacora doesn't stop there. He goes to another roll call and uh, says the same sort of things and he explicitly states that the PBA was lying about him and that he wasn't trying to change the work shift of officers. But then he goes off and he complains about past practices and how they were hindering the department and the like. And that's not enough. Bacor then went to a third roll call and expressed some of the very same views. And at that point, the PBA and the SBA have had enough, and they file a prohibited practice charge with New Jersey's Public Employment Relations Commission, and they seek the equivalent of an injunction uh, prohibiting Baycora from direct dealing. Uh, let me take apart two concepts in that sentence I just gave you. Uh, first of all, uh, some states' labor laws, uh, most prominently New Jersey, do allow the labor board, in this case, New Jersey's PERC, uh, to issue what's called interim relief, which is really the equivalent of an injunction. The whole idea is the labor board intervenes and says to the employer or the union, who's ever potentially committing the unfair labor practice, stop, stop whatever it is you're doing pending the resolution of the case. Uh, and in this case, what the PBA and the SBA want is inter interim relief, this injunction, prohibiting Baycora from direct dealing. What's direct dealing? Uh, well, part of the employer's duty to bargain in good faith, and in fact, part of the union's duty to bargain in good faith, is to only negotiate with the principles on the other side of the table. Bargaining discussions are supposed to be had at the bargaining table. And they are supposed to be had with whoever the employer's bargaining team is and whoever the union's bargaining team is. If one side or the other goes around the principles and talks to the constituents. So if, for example, a chief talks to rank and file firefighters or police officers, that's bargaining in bad faith and the particular form of it that is known as direct dealing. So that's what the PBA and the SBA are saying is when Becora goes into the roll calls and makes all of these statements and starts talking with officers about uh, their uh, views on these topics such as discipline and shift scheduling and off-duty employment and the like, that he is committing an unfair labor practice uh, complaint. Uh, what does New Jersey's PERC do about it? Or actually an administrative law judge for New Jersey's PERC. Uh, it issues the interim relief. It issues the equivalent of the injunction. Uh, the uh, ALJ starts with the proposition that uh, the state labor law does allow employers to express their opinions about labor relations uh, subjects, provided the statements aren't coercive. It can say kind of bland, statusy sort of things, like an employer can advise employees about the status of negotiations, so long as there's no implication 
of any threat of reprisal or promise of benefits. And that you have to look at the total context of the statements that are made to decide whether or not these statements are at all coercive. And in this case, the ALJ says uh, they were definitely coercive and promised benefits. Why? Uh, the ALJ says Bacora was a member of the city's bargaining team. And he made statements uh, at that meeting. And then he held three roll calls to, attend, to deal with the statements that he made and the reaction to them. Those meetings weren't voluntary. And the union officials weren't in attendance. And in fact, he even told the superior officers to leave one of those meetings. The ALJ says, and I'm quoting, I find that Bacora's undisputed statements at the non-voluntary meetings had the effect of making a promise of benefits from him and the city to the police officers, and this undermined the authority of the PBA and the SOA as the majority representatives. His conduct had a potential chilling effect on employee rights guaranteed by the collective bargaining laws during negotiations, undermined labor stability, and as a result, constitutes the irreparable harm necessary to issue interim relief. So, Bacora, stop it. Don't go directly to bargaining unit members and talk about what's going on in negotiations. A postscript to that case. Occasionally, you will see this issue of direct dealing, uh, kind of sort of direct dealing, coming up in a different way. And the different way is not when the chief goes down to a union meeting, but rather when the chief interrogates employees about what was said and done in a union meeting. And labor boards, so you know, are pretty strong about that. Uh, they think that what happens in union meetings uh, is almost always off-limit, unless there's some sort of uh, illegal action being contemplated at the union meeting, and that it's an unfair labor practice. It's not direct dealing. It's the unfair labor practice of interfering with the internal organizations of the union. It is an unfair labor practice for the employer to try to find out what was said during the course of union meetings. Okay, that's it for the April 2021 edition of uh, First Thursday. Hey, we are really thrilled to be starting up live seminars. Our first live seminars uh, will be happening beginning in May of 2021. We begin with our union leadership seminar to be held at the Luxor Hotel in Las Vegas. Uh, it looks like the uh, the virus issue in Las Vegas has uh, very much uh, subsided from where it was before. The Luxor is taking all sorts of precautions, social distancing precautions. And we have a lot of people registering for this seminar. We're going to make sure everybody is safe in the seminar environment. As you know, when we couldn't make those guarantees last year, we ended up having to cancel some seminars. Uh, I'm really optimistic that we're not going to have to do that. Uh, with these seminars. But we are running out of space for the first of our seminars, for the May seminar. If you're interesting, interested in registering for that seminar, go to lris.com. 
Uh, we'll have, I think we have about nine speakers coming from all over the country. These are union leaders from police, from fire, uh, who will be talking about uh, what it takes to run a successful labor organization and successful from the standpoint of finances, from the standpoint of success at the bargaining table, success in representing members in the disciplinary process. And we will also be talking about the extraordinary stress today that, uh, in particular, law enforcement labor organizations are under and how that may expand to cover all public sector labor organizations. So uh, hope to see you there. Uh, and with that, this is Will Aitchison signing off.